This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, how are you? Thank you for being here. I'm glad you're here. America's the greatest country in the world. We have a lot to do, a lot to be excited about, a lot to review, and and a lot to look forward to. Uh, It's going to be an exciting week here. Um, And it was a fun week. I can't believe we haven't talked since Iowa. Doesn't that seem like forever ago? Just a couple days ago. Bitter to be old news in just a a couple days here with North Carolina and South Carolina. Or excuse me, New Hampshire and then uh, South Carolina. Should we? We got someone. I want to talk about Booker T. Washington. He, he uh, was a theme of uh, of the week on my local show. I want to uh, tell a couple stories of him. Uh, but I, I, f- I feel the need to start talking about the burn. I feel like we, like I talk, we have talked a lot about Bernie Sanders, and I think it's important to for a few reasons. I want to share my my very first opinion on Bernie and his win, essentially in uh, in Iowa. My first opinion, and then I was rebuked soundly. Someone said, Slater, you got it all wrong. I thought about it, and uh, I think that person's right. So I want to lay out both opinions, my, my original one and then this other gentleman's, uh, and I want to know which, which one you feel, um, feel more. My first opinion, I'm watching the results come in on, was it Monday, right? And I was rooting for Bernie. I was <laughs> yelling at the TV. The precincts are coming in. Like, come on, Bernie. 0.2% more, baby. I was excited. Excited. Because I, you know, I, I like to see Hillary not, not do well. So Bernie's doing great. And then I'm watching uh, Bernie's speech afterwards. And everyone's going crazy. And then I thought, wait a second. Bernie Sanders, the avowed socialist, got 50% of the vote in Iowa. That's, that's, that's not good. That's, that's not a good sign for the future of our country to see all these, especially young people, voting for the socialist so fervently. Bernie Sanders should never get that much. He should always be a fringe candidate. Who gets like 2% of the vote? Because there's always going to be an Occupy Wall Street crowd. There just always will be. So 2%. He should get 2 Not 50%. So I, I was too wrapped up into uh, Hillary losing. And <laughs> I didn't think much of, whoa, wait a second. 
What's up with this guy winning? I want to read a paragraph here from an article that a professor wrote at Oklahoma University. Uh, This person will be fired soon, I'm sure of it. Uh, He said, it is disheartening that an avowed socialist is a viable candidate for president of the United States. Socialism is a dead end for hundreds of years. It has failed everywhere it's been adopted. The enthusiasm of our youth for the candidacy of Bernie Sanders is a symptom of our failure to educate them. Not only in history, government, and economics, but also basic morality. And he goes on and he ends. He says, if we want to retain our freedom and prosperity, then we must educate our kids that the purpose of government is to secure liberty, not provide free lunches. And I I read that and I'm thinking, you know, yes, all the young people supported Bernie Sanders is, is our failure to educate these kids, but it's also evidence of how successful their indoctrination has been. And I know that's a strong word, but <laughs> there it is. You saw it, saw it in Iowa. In a truly free and thinking society, a candidate should get up on stage and say, I'm going to give you a free college education. And 98% of the college kids there should respond, well, that sounds very nice, but I'm smart enough to know that there's no such thing as a free lunch. So how about instead, Mr. Candidate, uh, you, instead of promising something that can't be delivered or shouldn't be delivered, how about you encourage more educational freedom and, and more efficiency in our higher education system? Perhaps you can outline some ways that state governments can remove the, uh, the overhead costs, the number of administrators and whatnot. Or better yet, the government could stop handing out so many loans, which the universities then just pocket and then build extravagant amenities, which I then have to pay back with loans for the rest of my life. Well, like that's, that's a little, I don't even want to call it higher level thinking because it's not that high of level thinking. It's just the next level thinking. Because if we properly educated kids, they would be skeptical. That's what we got to, I want, I just want kids to be skeptical of promises. And it's so weird because, I don't know, I, I haven't done a study enough on this, but I don't know if this is an American thing or if this is a newer phenomenon, but I think we're skeptical a lot. I mean, if, if a snake oil salesman came up to you on the street and promised you that this elixir he was going to sell you would solve all your problems, I think, I think we'd be skeptical. I think those, all those kids at the Bernie Sanders rally would be skeptical. They're skeptical of infomercials, right? You watch an infomercial that this is the greatest product that anyone's ever made. And, and my first thought is no. <laughs> that's my initial thought. I, I think that's most people's no. Uh, maybe not because they sell them, right? Uh, but at the very least, a proper education should make kids skeptical of politicians' promises. Now, successful indoctrination would tell kids that they should believe anything they're told, especially from our politicians. Education is an interesting word. Uh, The etymology of it, E, it comes from the Latin X, 
meaning out of. Anytime there's an E in the beginning of a word or, or X, like exit, uh, it means out of. And then ducare means to lead. So education literally means to lead someone out of ignorance. When you're educating, think of that visual, right? When you're, when you're educating someone, you are leading them out of ignorance. And I read, I read a great analysis the other day that said where our base emotions and appetites lead us astray, we need to be led out of our ignorance. We need to be led out of it and study philosophy so that we can learn what is good. We are in a state of ignorance, so we need to learn history so we can be led out of our ignorance and learn about the virtues and the failures of the past. We need to learn language so that we can talk to other people, so we can be led out of ignorance and gain from their experiences and, and learn from their cultures. We, we are ignorant, so we learn math so we can find out how the world works. And it goes on and on and on, right? But that's what all these subjects are for. It's all about leading us, people, others, out of a state of ignorance and into a state of enlightenment, out of the darkness and into the light. And I don't know, maybe today there is no education. Because, it, because it's, we do the opposite, right? The, I think the entire system today is based off of telling students how great they're doing, no matter what. Right? You, you stay where you are. You're sure you didn't get the answer right, but you tried real hard, right? And, and we're telling kids that nothing matters except their emotions and appetites. And I think socialism is a perfect example. People feel like it should work and they really want it to work, right? That's your emotions. You feel like it should work and appetites. You really want it to work. But if you just learn cursory history, right, right. But, but if you're in that state, history means nothing. It means nothing. So we're not going to listen to past history. We're not going to be led out of our state of ignorance into enlightenment. We're just going to focus only on what we feel and what we want. So we're going to move forward based on feelings as opposed to reality. And that, I think all those people who, who want socialism to work, they, they need to be let out. <laughs> they need to be educated. And I'm hesitant to call, you know, you know we need to call people higher because it's not, it's not even higher. It's just like further. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't quite know the visual there, but maybe, maybe higher is right. You know, we feel like X is a good idea, whatever that is. But education, so having mentors and role models and, and uh, people around you who, with wisdom, those people call us to aspire more and they say, no, this isn't the right thing to do. Learn from my experience. This is what I would recommend you do instead. And you do that. And we do that in our lives all the time. But I don't know why we don't do it with, with our politics. I'll give you one example and then I'll stop rambling. Uh, um, let's say you're married and you go to the gym and you see a uh, good looking woman at the gym and you want to cheat on your wife with this woman. 
Now, as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another, I would advise you to do otherwise. And I would appeal to philosophy and morality. And I'd say this is wrong. It's just objectively wrong to do this. I would appeal to empathy. You know, how would your wife feel? How would you feel if she did this to you? I would appeal to history. I'd say, look at all these other people who did what you want to do, what you feel like is the thing you want to do right now. Look at the history of people who have done that thing. And I have a feeling if I appealed to those things, if I appealed to philosophy, morality, empathy, and history, that's what education is. It would take you from what you feel like you want to do and what you feel like is right, your base appetites, and I feel like, I hope it would call you to a higher place out of ignorance into enlightenment and you would do the right thing and stay faithful. We get that in our lives. We get that in our relationships. Why can't we do the same thing with politics? I want to take a break and I'll, I'll, I'll give a political example here. If you, if you encounter a Bernie Sanders supporter and, and they say, oh, I've, I feel like this is the best thing to do or I really want this to be the thing that we do or have. And you can say, sure, okay, but let's, let's think about this for a second. Let's appeal to morality and empathy and history and uh, let's really figure out the best thing to do. Not just what you feel like is the best thing. What is the best thing? That's what education is. To lead someone out of ignorance. That's the root of the word. 1-800-900-3393. I want to wrap up this. Origi- this, this was my, my first thought. I was discouraged by the number of, especially young people at Bernie Sanders rallies. Uh, and then someone rebuked me the other day. I don't want to tell you what they said. We'll do that next as well. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on washing and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. You're listening to Mike Slater. Slater Cassettes, thanks for being here. Talking about the burn. How so many people vote for the <laughs> uh, and I get and I feel I, I feel for the Democratic voters that the, the choices are uh, not numerous. It's a it's a tough decision to make. You got to vote for the person who might be in jail before they uh, actually win the nomination or uh, or the socialist. But then I watch the Bernie Sanders rallies and the people there they're not like oh well 
I wanted to vote for Hillary, but I really disagree with her email, so I guess I'll vote for this guy. They're fired up for the Bernie. They love him. They're all in. Oh, tonight, uh, Larry David's hosting Saturday Night Live, and and Bernie Sanders is going to be there as well. It's going to be hilarious. When I watch Bernie Sanders, I get confused for a second. Sometimes I think it's... Like it takes, I, I think it's Bernie Sanders doing an imitation of Larry David. Like I get totally confused for a minute. So it'd be fun to see them both uh, at the same time. Um, but I was talking about the, the kids who were there at the rally. Yeah, kids, young people under 30. 70, what, 78% of young people, people under 30, uh, voted for Bernie Sanders in Iowa, something ridiculous like that. Way more than Obama. Obama had like 60%, 58% or something, and Bernie had 78%. And I was making the argument that, um, and you can decide whether it's that these kids are not properly educated or that they are properly indoctrinated. It's a mix of the both. But the word to educate means to lead someone out of ignorance. That's the root, the etymology of uh, that word, to lead someone out of ignorance. And that hasn't hasn't been done with, with young kids enough. If for no other reason, I just wish they were more skeptical of politicians and their promises. And I, I weird, I guess that some people could say, well, you know, kids are skeptical of conservatives. And you know, here's the thing, like, I, I don't make any promises. Other than if we have free markets, you have the ability to thrive and succeed. And if everyone has that ability in a free market and a free government, then, uh, then we'll live in a more prosperous country. I mean, that, that's a, I guess that's my promise. But we got to get younger people to, to move beyond just what they feel is right or what they want to be, to be right and actually get them to understand what is right. So I used the example a second ago of if you want to cheat on your wife, it feels like the right thing to do or it feels like something you want to do. But if you educate that person and you, you give them the morality of it and say this is wrong and you throw in some empathy, you know, how would she feel? How would you feel if? She did this to you. You're throwing a little history. Oh, look Look at all these other people who did what you're about to do. It didn't go well for them. Then that person goes from a state of ignorance, being led by their emotions, into uh, a place of reason and enlightenment. And that's what education is. And we need to do the same thing with politics as well. So, so to a Bernie Sanders supporter, or I should say a Bernie Sanders supporter, would say, we need to take money from the rich and give it to the poor. Something like that. Wealth redistribution. We got to take from the rich, give to the poor. And I just want that person to just think for a second. Does that really make sense? Is that really like, is that that really the best thing to do? (laughs) Let me break it down a little more. Let's take a homeless family. So it is a natural human reaction to feel emotion for that family's poverty. That's a good thing. I'm glad we, we have those emotions. But it is ignorant. And I don't mean that in a you know, disparaging way necessarily. I just, it's just a fact, right? It's an ignorant and immoral reaction. Immoral. To say we should take someone's money, someone else's money from them and give it to this person. Now, it's a, it's a neutral reaction to say, I'm going to give money to this person. That's, that's fine. But it's really immoral to say, I'm going to take somebody else's money and give it to this person. That's wrong. 
That's, that's not a proper reaction. The moral thing to do, and I would say the educated thing to do, is to say, to think for a minute, what does this family need right now more than anything? Okay, let's get to know this family. We're not going to treat them like data. We're going to get to know them. And let's talk to the mom here. Okay, so mom, what's keeping you in poverty? What's keeping you homeless? Alcoholism. Okay, what's causing you to be an alcoholic? Depression. Okay, why are you depressed? Okay, we're going to keep talking about this. Let's get to the bottom of this. Let's break the cycle of your depression. We're going to work to help you get clean. We're going to work with you to improve your job skills. We're going to work with you because I know you want to be a better mother to your children. And we're going to work with you for two years to get you on your feet. This is the Solutions for Change model. This is my favorite charity here in San Diego. They end family homelessness with that two-year program right there where they actually get to know these families and lift them up truly and, and solve the root causes of their homelessness. They do it hundreds of times a year. And there's many organizations around the country that do. So do you see the difference between those two things? Like it is a very low level feeling reaction to say, oh, there's a homeless family. I'm going to take somebody else's money and give it to them. Like that doesn't do anything. It's way better, way more moral and higher level thinking to say, I'm going to get involved with that person's life. I'm going to help them defeat the demons in their life so that they can reach their full potential and break the cycle of poverty for that family and their family forevermore in the future. Which is the more moral approach. And I know the socialist guy and, and, and the girl promised there are shortcuts. I promise you there aren't. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders. Just reading a uh, headline here in the New York Times. Jeb Bush supporters debate advice. Throw that punch. Yeah, that's... My wife, sweet, amazing wife, uh, she'll watch Jeb Bush and cringe whenever he talks. It's just... She's, my, my wife, if, if she's walking down the street and she sees uh, an older person sitting alone in a, uh, in a Starbucks, she'll just start crying. Right? She's just got such a sweet heart. And she what, listens to Jeb talk, and she's like, oh, no, poor Jeb. Bless his heart. She's from the South. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. So every time he throws a punch, it's, uh, ooh, it doesn't. It's not good. So I don't know. I guess tonight's his last chance. Poor guy. Um, so last thought here on Bernie. Because it's not really about Bernie. It's about Bernie supporters. So... My first thought uh, on Monday night when Bernie pretty much won, and he would have won if Hillary Clinton didn't win six of the six coin tosses, which is, which is like witchcraft to win six of the six. If Bernie won three of the six, then he would have won the Iowa caucuses. So if he won 50% of the coin tosses, which one would think one would, uh, then he would have won the Iowa caucuses, but Hillary won because she won all six of the coin to crazy. Um, and my first thought was, uh, I was glad to see Hillary losing, but then I thought, gosh, whoa, whoa how many, 50% of people voted for the socialist guy. Like, that's not good. Especially young people. And I was talking to a friend about this, and he said, Slater, you're wrong. 
Don't, don't be disheartened. That's not a bad thing. And I said, what are you talking about? 78% of people under 30 in Iowa voted for Bernie Sanders. That's a problem because those, let's say 25, let's say this person's 25, that 25-year-old is going to be a socialist when they're 35, and then the 15-year-old in 10 more years is going to be 25, and then, and then pretty soon, you know, two generations from now, everyone's voting socialist. This person was more optimistic than me, and I always hate that. I hate when people are more optimistic than me. And he said, Slater, no, 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 you're, getting, you, you're all wrong here. It's a good thing to have these kids involved in the political process at all. He said, I'd rather have a kid go to a Bernie Sanders rally and be a Bernie Sanders supporter and involved in the process than a kid that same age checked out playing Xbox, not interested in politics at all. If I had to choose between the two, I'd choose the Bernie Sanders supporter. Because with a Bernie Sanders supporter, as they grow older and as the economy hopefully improves and they start working and they start making money, they'll start to see that their pie-in-the-sky ideas of their youth are not all they're cracked up to be. And maybe they'll become conservatives. And that part is up to us. But it's a lot easier to sell someone who's actively involved in the, in the political process than it is to sell someone who's not involved at all. And I said, ooh, that's actually a pretty good point. So what do you think? Which would you rather have? Do you have my first opinion that I had on Monday night, which is this is not good to have this many people supporting the socialist guy? Or do you have uh, my friend's opinion here, Brett? And he said, nah, well, it's not great, but I'd rather have people Bernie Sanders supporters than, than nothing. I think in the end, I, I choose to feel the burn over apathy. Apathy's the worst. Apathy's the worst. And it's interesting because we're not born apathetic. You know, kids, I don't think I've ever met a kid who doesn't ask questions, who doesn't ask constant questions, who doesn't stop asking questions, but then they stop asking questions when they're like 12. But we're, and and we can go in a lot of different angles here, but the reason they stop asking questions when they're of a certain age is because the education system is broken. And we tell kids to sit down, shut up, take notes, regurgitate information. There's no more curiosity in our school system. It's all one size fits all. You learn this at this time, at this moment, just like everyone else. Regurgitated at the right at the right time. That that's not it's not it doesn't inspire curiosity. So when kids reach a certain age, they stop asking questions because they're trained to stop asking questions. But we're born craving information. I don't have any kids yet, but uh, I've seen some babies and I've talked to some young parents and they say their favorite thing is watching their baby look around and like look at things for the first time and just like taking in the world. Like we crave information. And and if we had a proper education system, we'd constantly be craving information. Apathy only comes when something breaks down. Apathy is not a human's natural state. It's a broken down state. I'd rather have someone support Bernie Sanders than be broken down. <laughs> what do you think of that? Slater Radio on Twitter. Slater Radio on Twitter. I want to... Uh, mm-hmm. We have time to do this now, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I want to talk about Booker T. Washington. Can I do that real quick? I love Booker T. Washington. Frederick Douglass is one of my all-time favorite Americans. Booker T. Washington, close, close right, right there. Booker T. Washington was born a slave. Went on to be an incredible speaker and leader of men. He founded the Tuskegee Institute. Where when he got there, and maybe I can tell that story in more detail later, but when he got there, he expected to see a school there. And there was nothing there. There was literally nothing there. There were just kids to teach, but no building. So the kids literally had to build their own school, like physically with bricks, build their school. And then they held classes in the partially completed buildings until they were done. It was incredible. And Booker T did that because he said he wanted, well, he needed to, but also he wanted to uh, teach kids the dignity and beauty of labor. That awesome. The digni- dignity and beauty of labor. And he was teaching kids not to complain about their situation in life, but to overcome it. And the only way to overcome your situation is to better yourself, not tear people down, but better yourself. So Booker T. Washington tells uh, a story here of a doctor. A doctor in a town in South Carolina. Now, Booker, uh, the Tuskegee Institute started in 1881. I don't know when he told this story, but let's just call it, we'll call it the right, 1880s. Long time ago. So there's this doctor in South Carolina. This doctor, he didn't know anything about modern medicine. But over time, he gained the trust of the people in the town. And uh, he had his own interesting methods of treating people who were sick. But it was a long time ago. You know, it was a little different than, than now. So, you know, sure, he's the doctor in town. And he befriended an older lady who had cancer. And for 20 years, she felt like the luckiest woman in the world because there was this amazing doctor in her town. And every week for 20 years, she would meet with this doctor and he would treat her cancer, at least as best as possible at that time. 20 years, every week for 20 years. And this woman was over the moon about it because he kept her alive. Now, the woman was very wealthy and she paid the doctor every time that she went over for a visit because, again, she was so grateful. And with this money, the doctor sent his son to school and then sent his son off to a medical school. And then his son became a real doctor. And the son came back home and the dad took a well-deserved vacation. And when the dad was away, the old lady came back to the doctor's office. But, But the dad wasn't there anymore. The son was there, right? And the lady said that her cancer was bothering her again. And the son's like, oh, I'll take a look at it. No problem. And the son looked at it and said, oh, that's, that's not, that's not cancer. Here, rub this on it. You'll be fine. Come back in a week. It'll be gone. So she did. And a couple days later, the cancer was gone. It wasn't cancer. The dad said it was cancer, but it wasn't cancer. I'll read from Booker T. Washington here. He says, when the father of the boy returned and found the patient on her feet and perfectly well, he was outraged. He called the young man before him and said, my son, I find that you have cured that cancer case of mine. Now, son, let me tell you something. 
I educated you on that cancer. I put you through high school and college and medical school on that cancer. Meaning on the money that that woman paid every week to have it cured, treated for 20 years. So I paid for everything for you with that cancer. And now you, with your new ideas of practice in medicine, you come here and you cured that cancer. Let me tell you something, son. You done it all wrong. How do you expect to make a living practicing medicine this way? And this is Booker T. Washington. 130 years ago, he said, I am afraid that there is a certain class of race problem solvers who don't want the patient to get well. They don't want the patient to get well. Let me say that sentence again in case uh, you missed. I'm afraid, this is Booker T. Washington, I'm afraid that there's a certain class of race problem solvers who don't want the patient to get well. Because as long as the disease holds out, they have not only an easy means of making a living, but also an easy medium through which to make themselves prominent before the public. Do we have those people today? Do we have people who who don't really want to solve the problems because if they do solve them, then they lose their livelihood, then they lose their prestige? Those people still around 130 years after Booker T. Washington said so? I think so. Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, that's too simple, too simple. Yes, but there's more. I wonder if the, the entirety, the leadership in the Democratic Party, I wonder if they're the exact same way. Do they really want, and I'll just focus on, on black people for now because South Carolina is going to be the big story next week and that's why they think Hillary's going to win because she's going to get so much of the black vote. Do, does the Democratic Party really want black people to improve their plot in life? Do they really want black people to be the wealthiest demographic in America or the most educated? Do they really want their inner city districts to be the most prosperous and the nicest and the most vibrant and, dare I say, the most self-sufficient? Do you think they really want that? Or do you think deep down, they may not even recognize it anymore, but deep down they want the people in their district to remain a certain amount of dependent. Maybe they don't really want the patient to get well. Now, before you think I'm picking on the left, I'll talk about the Republicans now. Do you, are, are, is there people in Republican leadership who don't really want conservative policies and principles to be instituted? Because if Republicans, they, if they take the power and they wield it, then they're no longer going to be the opposition force. Right? Could it be that there are Republicans in power who thrive off of being the opposition and complaining and whining than actually doing something? Are, are there Republicans who, who need to be the underdogs so that they can fire you up against the Democrats instead of actually leading and improving everyone's standard of living? I think there's a lot of people in power who don't really want the patient to get well. Booker T. Washington said the same thing 130 years ago. So I don't know. I, I share that, and I, I know we started talking about Bernie, and you're like, what's the, what's the comparison? I wish young people in particular, but all of us, with a healthy amount of skepticism and, and cynicism, I think that's okay, to look at a patient or to look at a doctor and say, do you really want me to get well? 
Do you, are you ready? Okay, this thing you're passing, proposing. Uh, is that really going to cure the patient? Or is it just going to make you a lot of money and it's going to keep your prestige? That's something to always question, I think. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. So Booker T. Washington saying, you know, maybe the doctor, politicians, don't really want the patient to get better. Maybe they don't really want you or this group of people to get better because then they lose their uh, revenue stream and their prestige in the process. I think that's something to, to think about. Um, and I think I think a way to prove that they don't is they're not going after the right things so kevin williamson and i only got a minute to make this point but he brought up a good point he said addicts and criminals so if you know an addict in your life then you you've seen this they have a remarkable ability to invent imaginary problems for themselves right and they do that because if they can come up with imaginary problems then that's an excuse to not deal with their real problems So instead of dealing with their real problems, they, they make up silly things instead. And I feel like the, I'll just focus on Democrats, but everyone does this. You know, Bernie Sanders talking about uh, income inequality. Income inequality is not the problem. It's the result of problems. Let me say it again. Income inequality is not the problem. It's the result of problems, mostly a broken education system. But Bernie Sanders doesn't talk about fixing the education system. Have you heard any of them talking about fixing our education system? But when you get two kids, one graduates and can read and the other can't, yeah, they're going to end up with income inequality at the end of that. Focus on the real problems. To Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. How are you? Thank you for being here. Uh, debate tonight. And then another one next, next Saturday. This is it. This is the month. I guess I've, I've been... Uh, so looking forward to this process and this month in particular. I say month because March 1st is Super Tuesday. But it's always been so far away so I've always been like, oh, don't don't think too much about it because it's still a long way away. I do this with a lot of things that I look forward to. I'm like, oh, I can't I'll go crazy if I look forward to it too much all the time. So I gotta sort of put it in the back of my mind. But now I gotta realize whoa, like this, <laughs> like this, is, this, is, this is real. This is happening and otherwise uh, we're gonna blink and it will be behind us and we'll say, what? How did that guy win? In the world? Um, so this is it. 
I want to play this one clip here, and we will talk about the Republicans today. I know we've spent a lot of time on Bernie Sanders so far today, but really, not even Bernie Sanders, really. We talked about much more than him. Uh, I do, however, want to play this one clip of Hillary. This was, no, I did not watch the debate yesterday, because, or was it two days ago? Oh, my days are all messed up. Whenever the debate was, I didn't watch it, because I hadn't seen my wife a lot this week, and the debate started at 6, and she got home at 6, and I was like, ah, that's not a hard choice. So I didn't watch the debate, so sorry about that. But I did see a little bit of the uh, CNN town hall the day before. Uh, and by a little bit, I mean I watched three minutes of it. And however long this clip is, is most of those that three minutes I saw, and that was it. So uh, I tuned in and just saw this part right here, and this is uh, Hillary talking about the vast right-wing conspiracy. You mentioned attacks on the early 90s. Do you still believe there's a vast right-wing conspiracy? Don't you? (laughs) I'm asking you. Yeah. It's gotten even better funded. Uh, You know, they brought in some new multi-billionaires to pump the money in. And uh, look, these guys play for keeps. They want to control our country. Senator Sanders and I agree on that completely. They want to rig the economy so they continue to get richer and richer. They could care less about income inequality. They solve their consciences by giving big money to philanthropy and, you know, getting great pictures of them standing in front of whatever charity they donated to. But make no mistake, they want to destroy unions. They want to go after any economic interests that they don't believe they can control. They want to destroy our balance of power. They want to go after our political system and fill it with people who will do their bidding. I said today in uh, Dover, you know, I I don't think all of the Republican candidates are so ill-informed about climate change that they say they don't know because they're not scientists. They're just doing the bidding of the Koch brothers. They're told, don't you dare say climate change is real because we're in the fossil fuel business. So this is exactly what they are up to. And yes, it is probably, look, at at this point, it's probably not correct to say it's a conspiracy because it's out in the open. You know, there there is no doubt about what they're doing and who the players are and what they're trying to achieve. And, you know, they're shopping among the Republican candidates to figure out who among them will most likely do their bidding. So... Just know what we're up against because it's okay. real and we're going to beat it. But all right, all right, all right. All right, let's uh, let's break down each point there if, if we can real quick, and then I think we're done talking about just politics uh, for the day. We got some other th- stories to tell, including uh, a story of the only the sixth Navy SEAL to ever receive the Medal of Honor. Isn't that hard to believe? There's only been five in American history, and the sixth uh, was just announced the other day. I want to tell that story later. So we got we'll move beyond politics here, but. Um, I want to break this down because that's a really unhealthy, like, <laughs> but you know, we've, the last hour we talked about a healthy cynicism and by healthy cynicism, I mean, when a politician comes to you and says, I promise to do this, you should say, Hmm, mm-hmm. a, will you, and B, do you really want things to improve? Like that, that's a healthy cynicism, right? That's what you just heard is a paranoid <laughs> cynicism. And I mean, I don't know. Um, most, let me say it like this. I could say the same thing about Democrats. 
that Hillary just said about Republicans. I mean, I could have that same cynicism. I could call them evil and horrible and all the rest. But those Bernie Sanders supporters that we spoke of earlier, I guarantee you that they are kind, good, thoughtful people, right? They, they, want what's, they want everyone to be happy. These are all wonderful traits to have. I don't think they're evil, right? They're not. Uh, yesterday I saw a, a Bridge of Spies, um, right? There's some people in East Berlin that were straight evil, right? Like bad people. I don't think Bernie Sanders socialists are bad people, right? I think in the end, I think most people want the same thing. We have the same goal in the end. We just have different ways of getting there. I think that's true for most people. So I don't have that same like evil view of Democrats that uh, that Hillary just had of Republicans. But anyway, let's break down the points. Hillary said that Republicans want to control the country. That was her first point. She, we, uh, Republicans want to control the country. Mm, I want a conservative to win the White House and seats in Congress and the mayor's office. For, not to control it. But precisely so that they can uncontrol it. Right? I want a conservative, a real conservative, to win these positions so that politicians and bureaucrats have less control over people. And so that we have more of our rights and freedoms intact. We want less control. Hillary wants more control. Regulations, mandates, bureaucracy, that's all by definition control. Republicans want less control. Of that, So she's got that 180 degrees wrong. Uh, she says we are rigging the economy. Republicans are for rigging the economy. That's called cronyism. Ted Cruz won the state of Iowa while at the same time going around the state and telling everyone that he wants to end ethanol subsidies. That's, that's never been possible before. Ethanol subsidies are a form of cronyism. So the first Hispanic to ever win a primary or caucus in American history did so while arguing against cronyism to people who are beneficiaries of said cronyism. And uh, as you saw in The Blaze a week or so ago, there was a seven-minute video of Ted Cruz talking to a farmer. And the farmer comes up to him in front of a bunch of people and says, you know, how dare you uh, be against ethanol? You're never going to get farmer support. Ethanol is so important, blah, 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 blah. And within seven minutes... Ted Cruz brilliantly works with this guy. And there's a bunch of different persuasion tactics he used that maybe we can talk about later. But he got on the guy's side. He was working with them. And all this, and seven minutes just masterfully worked through the problem. And at the end, the farmer said, you're right. I hope you win. You have my vote and I'll support you and I'll encourage other people, other farmers, other ethanol farmers to support you as well. What? So Hillary says that we're for rigging the economy. Ted Cruz won on a platform of unrigging it. No subsidies for any any form of energy at all. That's the opposite of rigging the economy. Hillary said that conservatives, Republicans don't care about income inequality. Now that she's right about. I don't care about income inequality. Because as I briefly mentioned in the last hour, income inequality itself is not a problem. Income inequality is a result of other problems, mostly a failed education system and a stagnant economy. But Hillary doesn't want to do anything. Let's just do our our education system. If you, there's a school, I know there's a school near you where the um, 
percentage of kids who can read at grade levels less than 50%. There's schools here in San Diego where it's 20%. 20% of kids can read at grade level. That means 80% can't. So if you have a kid who graduates high school and one of them can read and the other can't, that's the problem. The result of that problem will be income inequality because the one who can read will get a job and the one who can't won't and will stay at that job forever. And the one who can read will start off at an entry-level job and then work his way up and up and up and up. So income inequality is not the problem. It's a result of the problem. And the problem is a broken education system. And Hillary doesn't want to do anything about that. So she says, I don't care about income inequality. I mean, she's right. But I'll say she doesn't care about our broken education system. She doesn't care about the kids who graduate and can't read their diploma. She said, they, Republicans, you, conservatives, want to destroy unions. No, I want to end forced unionization, which goes back to the control thing that she was talking about. She said, we want to end uh, or destroy the balance of power. I'm assuming she's talking about checks and balances, which again is absurd because we will vote for a president as as the Republicans. We will vote for a president who understands the constitutional role of the executive and will return the proper balance of power back to what our founders intended. All to protect the people. That's an absurd accusation. And then she tops it off with climate change. And she says that that's an example of how the conservatives are doing the bidding of the Koch brothers. I, I mean, I, again, that's so cynical. Like People, who, okay, and we've said this many times. We'll do climate change because she brought it up. There are leaders and followers in the uh, people who are all freaking out about climate change. There's leaders and followers. 99% of them are followers. People like my mom or your wife or your colleague, whoever, who just want a clean planet. They want clean water and clean air and a clean planet, and they want to recycle because they feel good about themselves. That's fine. But you get the leaders. They're the people who have major problems. They're the ones who want to control the economy and manipulate this, that, the other, and all the rest. Those are bad I don't want to say bad people, but those are the people who we really got to watch out for. The accusation that, so I understand the difference. Does that make sense? Like I understand the difference between someone who wants a clean, clean water and someone who wants to control all the waterways in America so that the bureaucracy of the EPA can grow and their power and prestige can increase. Right? There's a difference between those two types of people. Hillary doesn't say that difference to her. It's just, if you're against climate change, you're doing the bidding of the Koch brothers, period, end of sentence. So if you believe that the earth goes through natural climate cycles over very long periods of time that have nothing to do with humans because it's happened since before humans were on this planet. If you believe that, then you're doing the bidding of the Koch brothers. And if you believe that, yeah, sure, maybe there is climate change going on, but that it's not as catastrophic as the fear mongers tell us it is, then you're doing the bidding of the Koch brothers. And you're, you're against cat- the idea of the concept of catastrophic climate change because the Koch brothers are in the fossil fuel business. So therefore, I have to do whatever they say. Like, that is absurd. And I'll say it right here. If someone comes up with a form of energy that is cheaper, more abundant, and more reliable than fossil fuels, I'll be the first person to kick the Koch brothers and fossil fuels to the curb. I have no affinity to the Koch brothers or fossil fuels itself. But I got to drive home after the show. So let me put gas in my car. Like, I, I gotta, if you could go with something better than that to run my car on, that's fantastic. But until then, leave me alone. 
but again, that goes back to the, the just like a paranoid cynicism that's really unhealthy uh, for our country. And it's so funny because, you know, there are the people, again, who talk about unity and bringing people together and all the rest. And she says that you're just, uh, you know, you want to sell out uh, the, the planet or whatever and all the people on the planet because you are, uh, uh, you know, in bed with the Koch brother. Like, what is that? Now. You could say, Slater, you, you're cynical yourself a little bit. Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I'm skeptical of why we should vote for someone who pre- for president who deliberately set up a personal email server in order to avoid the public from seeing her emails because she was probably doing something shady or illegal. And in the meantime, disclose the nation's highest level security secrets to enemies. Like, like that? Like, yeah. Like that? Like, I'm skeptical of that. I'm cynical of that. So if you want to call me a member of the vast right-wing conspiracy, like, mm, I don't think that person should be commander-in-chief. So if that's vast right-wing conspiracy, then uh, I'm part of it. But anything that Hillary just said is part of the vast right-wing conspiracy. Uh, honestly, she's the exact opposite of everything she said is true. But what else is new? one 93 That's it with the hard politics today. We're done. I'm done with it. Got a debate tonight. And uh, a lot of other chances to talk about it. But it's Saturday afternoon now. Let's talk about some other things too. one 93 Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, how are you? Thanks for being here. Uh, big story in San Diego for the week is our school board president of the San Diego Unified School District has uh, pled guilty uh, to a misdemeanor and uh, had to resign finally. Uh, I won't bore you with the details because I mean, you don't care, you're not here. But um, she did three illegal, um, she did three things that we knew about over the last year that ranged from unethical to against board policy, to illegal. And then after an investigation, it was, the, it was a fourth thing that we didn't even know about that she pled guilty to and had to resign. And it's good to see her go, but the worst thing she did when she was in, uh, uh, in office was institute um, restorative justice in the San Diego School District. It's all across the country. It's probably in your school district. And... It started a couple of years ago when it was discovered that minority students are disciplined and suspended more often than white students. So instead of saying, huh, I wonder why, like, let's get let's get to the bottom of why certain kids aren't behaving properly in class or whatever. Instead of that, the response was no more discipline <laughs> for anyone. No more discipline in schools. And the kids just run wild. They go crazy and they know that no matter what they do, they're never going to be suspended. They're never going to be disciplined. We've told stories of teachers getting threatened, physically threatened by students. Um, we've told stories and on my local show, we've had teachers call in and we had teachers call in here too, um, who said that their elementary school students 
will go berserk. They'll flip out in class. They'll freak out. They'll hit. They'll throw things. And teachers can't do anything. All the other kids are scared. The elementary school kids are crying. They're scared. They're hiding under their desks. And the teacher can't discipline the kid because of restorative justice. Ask your school board members if this is something that goes on in, uh, in your school. I bet it does. Restorative justice. No more discipline is what it says. No such thing as discipline. And it's supported way up at the top with Arnie Duncan at the uh, Department of Education. We mentioned Booker T. Washington earlier. Booker T. Washington, founder of the Tuskegee Institute in 1881 in Alabama. He was invited to start this school for black children. School for black children. And he was invited by local white people. And he showed up at the side of the school and he expected to see a school. But there was nothing there. Like There was literally nothing there. Except for, in his words, hundreds of hungry, earnest souls who wanted to secure knowledge. There was, no, there was no school. Now, there was a church down the street that had an assembly room, and they started holding classes in there. But the roof leaked. He had to hold an umbrella over his head when he taught. And this wasn't going to do. He wanted to grow well beyond this room. So he literally had his students build the school. Like with bricks. Like literally build it. And you know what the most important value was of his? Not only discipline, yes, discipline, but I'll give you another example. Personal hygiene. Personal hygiene was the greatest, uh, one of the, the greatest disciplines that Booker T. Washington demanded. Why? Because white people saw black people as dirty. So he hated to see students dirty in any way. He wanted to break this stereotype. And he said, this requires discipline. Every single day. The opposite today. The philosophy in our schools today is discipline is strictly not allowed. You, you, you can't discipline kids. And without discipline, nothing else is possible. I wish we'd go back to some of these lessons from Booker T. Washington. Remember a couple weeks ago in the beginning of the year, we talked about how the left wants to return to zero. Just throw away everything we've learned, all the great principles, all the virtues, all the knowledge, all the wisdom, throw it all away and start anew and then make all the same mistakes that have been made before. I don't want to do that. I just want to go back to Booker T. Washington and his wisdom. A little black history that perhaps race painters don't want you to know about. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. The next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Hey, Slater presenters. Thanks for being here. Slater Radio on Twitter. And uh, 1 888 is the uh, numero de telefono. Uh, it's restorative justice now that I started yakking about it. Uh, again, the idea is that we're, we're disciplining and suspending too many minority kids. So instead of saying, well, gosh, why, why are so many kids doing things that result in them being suspended. Um, you know, there seems to be some sort of problem in, our, in some schools with some students. Like, what can we do to address this on an individual level? Blah, blah. Instead of that, it's let's never discipline anyone ever again. And kids have ran with it because they know they can get away with anything. And I just think it's fascinating how 
we as humans, and I don't know if this is a recent phenomenon or if this is how we've always been. It's probably how we've always been because there's nothing new under the sun, but we tend to go in extremes. Right? That's an extreme, this restorative justice approach. Right? There's, there's certain kids who have discipline problems. So instead of looking at it in a, a measured way and saying, oh gosh, you know, how can we uh, address this? We have to say, no more discipline! <laughs> we come up with this fancy name for it, restorative justice, and kids just get away with anything. Like, that's crazy. Like, why do we go that way? Why do we do that? And I think all this, uh, this campus political correctness nonsense, is, it's the same thing. It's this extreme. Like, we go from, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, University of Oregon? I think Oregon. Did we talk about this last week? We may have mentioned it. There's a statue on campus of Martin Luther King Jr. And it's, it's a quote from I Have a Dream. Right? It's the line, you know, I have a dream that my, uh, four, uh, my kids, my black kids will be able to, uh, you know, play in the playground and hold the hands of little white children, blah, blah, blah. And, and the ki- people will be judged by the color of their uh, or content of their character, not the color of their skin. And they want to eliminate that. <laughs> what? They say it's not inclusive enough. It's literally the most inclusive sentence you could ever write that I want to judge. We should judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. That is the most inclusive thing possible. But they, the kids there want to eliminate it because uh, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't talk about gender. He said that, that quote doesn't it's not inclusive enough for people with gender identity differences or whatever. And it's like, oh, geez, kids. You, you can't, you're, you're not smart enough to, to see that he's not only talking about skin color. He's talking about just anything, just content of character is the most important thing. And the point is he's talking about how we should judge by the content of the character, not by anything else. It's character that's the most important thing. Good night. The left, the, the political correctness, they're just eating their own. Like, oh, Martin Luther King Jr. is too extreme. Or, or too, too, uh... I don't even know. Like, hateful? Like, I, so we just got to go to this crazy extreme and just eliminate MLK Jr. from it. I think it's wild. Uh, I saw this video uh, the other day of John Cleese. He, this is the guy behind uh, Monty Python, and he's talking about political uh, correctness on campus. So the idea that you have to be protected from any kind of uncomfortable emotion is one I absolutely do not describe, uh, subscribe to. And a fellow that I helped write to um, books about psychology and psychiatry. He was a renowned psychiatrist in London called Robin Skinner, said something very interesting to me. He said, if people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start trying to control other people's behavior. And when you're around super sensitive people, you cannot relax and be spontaneous because you have no idea what's going to upset them next. And that's why I've been warned recently, don't go to most university campuses, because the political correctness has been taken from being a good idea, which is let's not be mean, particularly to people who are not able to look after themselves very well. That's a good idea, to the point where any kind of criticism of any individual or group can be labeled um, cruel. And the whole point about humor, the whole point about comedy, and believe you me, I've thought about this, is that all comedy is critical. 
even if you make a very inclusive joke, like um, how do you make God laugh, answer, tell him your plans. Now, that's about the human condition. It's not excluding anyone. It's saying we all have all these plans which probably won't come, and isn't it funny how we still believe they're going to happen? So that's a very inclusive joke. It's still critical. All humor is critical. If you start saying, oh, we mustn't, we mustn't criticize or offend them, then humor's gone. With humor goes a sense of proportion. And then as far as I'm concerned, you're living in 1984. Stop there. I love that line. Uh, he says, if people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start controlling other people's behavior. That's awesome. If people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start controlling other people's behavior. That is the modern PC movement, isn't it? But see how they took something that's potentially good, which is we're not going to be mean to people. Right? That's the beginning of political correctness. Let's not be mean to people, which is good. But now it's a contest to see who can be the biggest victim to the slightest insensitivity. And it's, it's gone to this crazy extreme. What's up with that? Why do we do that? I'll give you one last example here because I got a minute. Um, so a while ago, I don't know when this would be. I don't know when this was appropriate or would have been appropriate. But a while back, it may have been appropriate for black students in colleges to have their own fraternal organizations. Right? Places where black students could meet and live together. I don't think that's appropriate anymore. I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think it's necessary. But where maybe this made sense and where maybe it could possibly make sense still today in a, in a limited sense, now it's been taken to this crazy extreme. So UConn, University of Connecticut, go Huskies. Planning, why would I say that? Cuse basketball. Why did, no, boo, boo, Hus, boo Huskies. UConn's planning on building an entire dorm room for black men. That's it. Dorm room for black men. No one else is allowed. That's the progressive movement today. A dorm room only for self-segregation. In the name of progress, they're going back to the very thing that they were against in the first place. Segregation. Segregating people based off the color of their skin. (laughs) It's amazing. So you take someone who's progressive, and they would say that they're for equality. They would say they're for equality. But now they're building a dorm room just for black people, black men. Isn't that separate but equal? That's it. That is what that is. That was the basis of the entire civil rights movement is that separate but equal isn't good enough. They just wanted equal. So we're like, okay, yeah, that's right. So now we just have equal. And now those same people want separate but equal. Jeez. Now, this is the craziest part when I read this for the first time. I read an article about this. And it quotes a woman. This woman is an African studies and political science major. And uh, she said, I was, quote, I was not pleased when she heard about this dorm room for black men. She said, I was not pleased. My immediate thought was, what? So I read that, I thought, oh man, good. Some common sense at UConn. Here we have a woman, she's African studies, um, and she's looking at this like we are. Thank goodness. You know, she's against this, um, this idea. And she goes on, she says, 
I know there had to be a lot of research that went into it. But just for me, coming from a student perspective, my initial thought was, what about black women? What about us? <laughs> like, what? You want your own separate but equal dorm room too? You want your own separate but equal dorm building? So black men over here, black women over here, and then white people over there? That's what you want at UConn? That's where the black men live? That's where the black women live? This is where everyone else lives? That's what you want? Oh, geez. And then the article went on and quoted another student. Uh, and this uh, this person you know, it's, it had the quote, and then it said, um, you know, student, uh, says student Charlie Smith, a puppetry major. And then my head exploded and I stopped reading. So I don't know what else. The article, a puppetry major. <sighs> MLK could not possibly be proud of this. Self-segregation, could he possibly be proud of that? So there's your progressive philosophy. And I don't know. I don't know if this is a new phenomenon or not, but we, we take things to these crazy extremes. We, we, you know, restorative justice. Hey, there's too many kids being uh, suspended. Oh, okay, then let's not ever discipline kids ever anymore. Whoa, that's not, that's not what I meant. It started off as, you know, let's not be mean to people. And now it's, well, let's be super sensitive to everything at all times and never say anything that may be difficult or important. Well, that's not... It's not what we want either. And now it's, hey, you know, let's not segregate each other based on skin color. And now it's, we must self-segregate at all times. Why do we do this? Why, why do we, what's wrong, what's wrong with this? one 888 Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Cassetters, just talking to um, producer Flip here during the break, talking about uh, the Oscars. Now, uh, you know, there's all this silly controversy about it not being diverse enough, which is just dumb. Um, I think even Whoopi Goldberg came out and said that's silly because she won an Oscar you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, and uh, Flip says, you know, Chris Rock is the host. And that's funny, like, no one. You get, the, you get the, a black guy's the host. Like, it's not. How, and that, that's the, I think that's the thing that matters the most is the host. That's that's the face of the uh, of the thing. And Chris Rock hosted it eleven years ago. Crazy. Racism is such a funny thing. It's so weird. I, I I read this. Um, actually, let me pull it up here. Uh, what was the headline? Um, hold on, I can pull it up here. One momento. Um, this is from a. Professor of Public Policy and Journalism at uh, USC. Um, Here we go. With Senator Cruz taking nearly 28% of the vote and Senator Marco Rubio getting 23%, this is in Iowa, uh, each vastly surpassing the results of any other Latino candidate in any previous United States presidential contest, uh, how is that not being celebrated as historic? or at least worth a headline for a day or two. The answer is not that complicated. Here it is. Neither Mr. Cruz nor Mr. Rubio 
meets conventional expectations of how Latino politicians are supposed to behave. Behave. <laughs> Neither of these candidates claims to speak for the Hispanic populations or derive a crucial portion of their support from Hispanics, and neither bases much of his political identity on being a Latino. Wow, that is such a racist sentence. Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio don't meet the conventional expectations of how Latino politicians are supposed to behave. Please tell me, how is a Latino politician supposed to behave? How are they supposed to be? Not even, that, that's worse because that's not even like what are they supposed to think or believe. It's how they're supposed to behave. Wow. So the root of this whole argument is they're not liberals, so they're not really minorities. So please understand this from this point forward so we don't have to ever talk about this again. Um, only liberals can be minorities. Got it? Only, only progressives can be minorities. And then the idea that Marco Rubio doesn't base his political identity on being a Latino... I mean, like, he, I don't think he does, but all he talks about in his stump speech are that his parents are Cuban immigrants. I mean, that's what that's the whole speech. Like, it's all about coming from Cuba. I guarantee you tonight he'll bring it up three times in the. He's not hiding it. Marco Rubio's not hiding that his family's from Cuba. Same with Ted Cruz. Do you remember Mark Halperin a couple months ago uh, was asking Ted Cruz what his favorite Cuban dish was? He goes, and he did it with this attitude, like, hey, Ted, what's your, uh, what's your favorite Cuban dish? As if to, like, stump him. And Cruz said, oh, gosh, I, I don't know. I grew up on uh, eating Cuban food all the time. What's your favorite dish? What is it? Name one now. Name one Cuban dish, you so-called Cuban-American. <laughs> I was like, whoa, man. And then, that was the same interview where at the end of it he said, um, uh, Senator Cruz, could you please welcome Senator Sanders to the race? Uh, and, and I'd like you to do it in Espanol. Like, what? Like, Cruz is a monkey. Halperin's making him dance in front of the camera like a good Cuban. Like, how crazy. And I know Glenn went on a big uh, rant a couple weeks ago of uh, uh, Chris Matthews saying, who wants to watch the two Cubans debate or whatever? Like, but like I don't know. Go back to the idea like, oh, you know, they don't, uh, they don't even really. It's not their identity. It's all Malcolm Rubio talks about. But that's the thing, 60% of people in Iowa, 60% of the racist backwoods rednecks in Iowa, 60% voted for either a black man or a Hispanic man for president. Nothing about it. Now, you'd think conservatives would celebrate that more, but actually not really, because we don't judge. (laughs) We don't judge people based on the color of their skin, just the content of their character. And in this case, their dedication to the Constitution. 1-888-900-3393. one 900 Coming up, want to uh, kick off the hour sharing a story of the latest Medal of Honor recipient. Incredible story. We'll share it next. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater 
Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, it's Sonic Crusaders. America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Uh, we have a few more politics to talk about. Uh, a few more stories to share, but I want to take a little time out here and uh, share this story here. And I know we will again uh, at the end of the month. But I want to go back to December 5th, 2012. An American doctor and his interpreter were driving through eastern Afghanistan. They were there helping people, doing aid work. As they were driving, their car was stopped by some members of the Taliban. The American doctor was taken captive. The Taliban brought him to a room in a building not too far from where he was taken. But the plan was to move him into a much further off location soon. Three days later, that doctor being held in the room in a room of a house. The doctor woke up in the middle of the night to dogs barking and the sheep going nuts. Minutes later, all of his captors were dead and he was being rushed into a helicopter. He said the whole thing lasted two minutes. From the time he woke up to the time he was in that helicopter, two minutes. What happened in those two minutes? Navy SEALs happened. The SEALs were a few yards from the compound when a Taliban spotted spotted them. One of the SEALs, Nick Check, fired at the Taliban, missed. And then he and Byers, Ed Byers, ran to the front door of the home. Now, the door was six heavy blankets hanging. That's how Afghans commonly insulate their homes. So they pushed through these six heavy blankets to get inside, and they were immediately fired at. Check was hit. Byers wasn't. He ran to the Taliban guy with the gun and and fought him off hand-to-hand combat. Now, while he's fighting this guy, he saw another man dart across the back of the room. And he had no idea. I didn't mention this. It was middle of the night. It was dark out. He had no idea if that guy on the back of the room was another Taliban or the American that they were trying to rescue. So he was able to keep fighting this one guy and then tackled this new threat to the ground. And when he's on top of them, he's adjusting. Byers, I'm talking about. Ed Byers, while he's, he's, he's on top of him, he's adjusting his night vision goggles to find out whether he's Taliban or the American. Now at this time, the rest of the SEALs enter the room. Byers realized that this was not the doctor. It's one of the Taliban guys. So Byers yells out for the doctor, yells to him to identify himself. And this is amidst the chaos and the gunfire and all the rest. And when he yelled out, he heard someone uh, off on the other side of the room respond in English. So Byers ran across the room, threw himself on top of the American to shield him from gunfire. While Byers was on top of the American, he was able to grab another Taliban fighter by the throat and pin him up against the wall until another SEAL saw this and shot him. 
as Byers is laying on top of the doctor, he keeps telling him, you're going to be okay. We're going to get you out of here. Now think about this from the doctor's perspective. The doctor didn't even know who this guy was on top of him. He didn't know what was going on. Who are these guys? Who are these machines? The helicopter landed out front. Byers grabbed his teammate, Check, off the ground, pulled him to the helicopter. Byers began life support. He did CPR for 40 minutes on the way back to the base. But it didn't work. Petty Officer First Class Nicholas Check was pronounced dead. Now, we just learned the details, those details I just shared. We just learned those just the other day. And the only reason we did is because it was announced that Chief Special Warfare Officer Edward Byers will be the sixth Navy SEAL to receive the Medal of Honor. Only the sixth. Before we knew what exactly happened, like I just shared, his recommendation for the Medal of Honor, all it said was, quote, for his courageous actions while serving as part of a team that rescued an American civilian being held hostage in Afghanistan. That's it. <laughs> that, I mean, that, that vague, that... <laughs> I don't want to say nondescript because, I mean, it's, it's pretty descript, right? Like, part of a team rescued an American civilian in Afghanistan. I, I mean, like, like, that's descript. But no details, no specifics, no stories there of pinning a Taliban guy up against the wall by his throat while he's protecting the American until like, someone else sees the Taliban. Like, none of that stuff. Just basically Medal of Honor for courageously, as he would say, I'm sure, doing his job. But now we know the story. And you hear the story and you're thinking, no. No way. That's superhuman. That's superhuman stuff there, Slider, to be able to think that fast, to be able to move that fast, to be able to protect a hostage and choke out a Taliban. Come on. All after running into a building knowing that you're going to get shot? And doing all this for what? A guy? <laughs> I don't want to bring... Well, I will, though. Because uh, I do, I guess. Um, Benghazi. Uh, it's, uh, 13 Hours. The movie? Right? That's the movie, and we talked all about it a couple weeks ago. That movie is about... It's the story of leaving men behind. That's what that is. It's the story of leaving men behind which is the opposite of everything that our military and our country stands for. You never leave a man behind. But that's what Benghazi is. It's the story of leaving men behind. Not only the men on top of the roof, but the 50 or so people inside of that building that those men on top of the roof 
protected. You know, four people died in Benghazi. It could have been 54. 54 people would have been left behind. So you think of that and how higher-ups betrayed Americans in Benghazi, betrayed them in profound ways. Ways that, you know, we haven't heard from any of the people who were in that building. I don't know if we ever will. But profound ways that I'm sure many of those people will never recover from. And here's the story of these Navy SEALs storming into this home, knowing it's dangerous and all the rest, for this guy. Just need doctor guy. <laughs> what? But they did it. That's superhuman. The next day, the doctor, Dilip Joseph is his name, by the way. The next day, the doctor was invited to the ramp ceremony for the American who was killed. And Dr. Joseph watched the SEAL team load their fallen comrade's body onto a C-17 cargo plane to head back to America. And the rescue doctor looked around and saw tears running down the SEAL's cheeks. And he thought to himself, huh, they are human. Buyers will receive the Medal of Honor on February 29th in the White House. It would have been sooner, but he's on deployment right now. No doubt, if you watch the ceremony, he won't want to be there. He will look miserable. He will look like it's the last place in the world he wants to be. And I guarantee you, he would give that medal up if it meant Nick Check could still be with us today. These are amazing men. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Later. I have another Booker T. Washington story. I hope you enjoyed that story about uh, Ed Byers and Nick Check. These guys are crazy. Um, I want to tell another Booker T. Washington story coming up. And I also want to talk about... Uh, I don't even know how to word this. Um, March 2nd. So March 2nd, we're going to have a pretty good idea who our next nominee, at least for the Republicans, are going to be. I say, I say, the only reason I don't say Democrats is because Hillary may be you know, in jail by then. Who knows? Uh, but for Republicans, we'll, we'll know after Super Tuesday, which is March 1st. Uh, I think it's March 1st. The person who wins at the end of this process, 
the end of this month, will be the candidate who can best turn his liabilities into assets and turn the other candidates' assets into liabilities. So who can turn their negatives into positives and the other candidates' positives into negatives? And whoever will do that will be the person who wins. Now, I don't know how to do it. I don't know who's going to do it. But I do know that on March 2nd, when whoever's winning, we will look back and say, oh, that's what he did. Look at that. Look at how he was able to turn his negative into a positive and everyone else's positive into a negative. I want to talk about some historical examples of people doing that outside of politics and some politics examples as well, just to prove how powerful this can be and how important it will be because someone's got to separate themselves. So whoever can do that will win. So we'll talk about that next. I got a minute here. I want to uh, chat about Ted Cruz just for a moment. Uh, Let me say this without, and this is just, these are just predictions. So I don't, uh, please don't email me and yell at me for supporting one way or the other. These are just predictions. Um, I've always predicted that Trump will win the nomination. Or not always, last couple months I predicted. I know a lot of people right now who are saying Rubio is going to come out on top. I think Ted Cruz probably has, if I had to pick any of the top those three, I think Cruz has the least likely chance of winning. Now, please don't think that the, that means I don't want him. No, 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 no. Just prediction. Very like Okay, so I want the Broncos to win. I think the Panthers will win. See the difference there? I want the Broncos. I think the Panthers. Same thing. I think Ted Cruz has the least likely chance to win, but of the top three. But he is a brilliant man. And I think this is worth noting. Let me back it up one second. Yesterday on my local show, we talked to a pediatric neurosurgeon who, for the last couple of years, has worked with 40 engineers and scientists on developing a new football helmet. Really fascinating. It's called the Zero One. Keep an eye on it. Uh, next year, they're going to introduce it to some different teams and whatnot. And it's going to reduce the amount of concussions. So I talked for like a half an hour with this doctor. Really fascinating story about how this came to be and all the rest. And right at the end of our interview, where we talked all about the football helmet, I said, oh, real quick, doctor. Dr. Browd is his name. So real quick, doctor, um, politics aside, what do you think about Ben Carson? And he goes, oh, legendary and spectacular. That's what he said. Legend, those are his first two words. Legendary and spectacular. I said, hold on, what do you mean? He said, oh, he, the greatest neurosurgeon ever. He said people would surround him and follow him when he makes his round, made his rounds at Johns Hopkins just trying to absorb knowledge by observing him. <laughs> and he goes, politics aside, I'm not talking about politics, but he is legendary and spectacular. That's impressive. Because a little part of me, when I asked the question, I was like, oh, geez, this would be embarrassing if like, he doesn't know who Ben Carson is. Or, or if he's like, yeah, Ben Carson, he's okay. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's a good sort. Legendary and spectacular. But because he's a, a Republican, conservative, he has to be portrayed as one of two things, either evil or stupid. Every Republican is either evil or stupid. Now, Carson, they were able to put in the stupid category because he talks slow and his eyes are kind of closed a lot. So he must be stupid, even though he is objectively one of the most brilliant people ever to walk the face of the planet. 
Now, does he? Does that mean that he's you know going to be a good a good president necessarily? No, not necessarily. But you can't call him stupid. Same thing with Ted Cruz. Texas Monthly, uh, a reporter there, has been covering Ted Cruz since 2009. She's on the uh, the Ted Cruz beat for the last seven years, and she wrote a field guide for Ted Cruz. And it's really fascinating because she's approaching him from a, a journalist's perspective, not partisan either way. And one of her points was, this is her points. One of her points was, quote, Ted Cruz is smarter than us. And this is what she says. She says, when I say that Cruz is smarter than us, I don't mean to imply a value judgment or even contrast with other politicians. What I mean is that Cruz has the particular form of intelligence that is universally recognized as such. And he has it in abundance. It's just how it is. I feel no need to deny it. And I see no purpose in doing so. Indeed, I proceed, and this is important, I proceed on the assumption that Cruz is smarter than me. Not that he's a superior human who Americans should follow blindly, and not that he's always right. Just that he's smarter than me. In practice, that means when Cruz says or does something that doesn't make sense to me, I ask myself what I'm missing. And I take a step back and I slowly puzzle through why a very smart person would do that. Now, Lord knows this is not my usual practice with politicians, but it has turned out to be a surprisingly effective technique for analyzing Cruz, and I highly recommend it. Isn't that interesting? That that humility from a journalist, I think, is, is wise. And I wish we had more of that across the country. We told the story last week of uh, Lincoln and his uh, Secretary of War, Edward Stanton. And Lincoln said a letter to Stanton that said, hey, you know, do this. And Stanton called him a damned fool. Said Lincoln's a damned fool. So the messenger went back to Lincoln and said, "You know, uh, Stanton called you a damned fool." And he goes, "Oh, did he?" And then he leaned back in his chair and took a breath and said, "Well, if Stanton said I'm a damned fool, then I must be one, because he is generally right and says what he means." So I'm going to go pop in and talk to him. Like that is incredibly humble. And here's this journalist saying, "Gosh, when Ted Cruz does something or says something that I disagree with." He's smart, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a step back and analyze because I, I might be missing something. The media's got to portray every Republican as either stupid or evil. Ed Driscoll points out that uh, you know Calvin Coolidge was stupid. Hoover was evil. Eisenhower was stupid, which again was quite a trick. Nixon, of course, he was evil. Ford was stupid. He went to Yale Law School. Reagan was stupid and evil. H.W. Uh, Bush was kind of difficult to pin down, but Dan Quayle was stupid. And W., of course, he was stupid. But Cheney was evil. So what's Ted Cruz? He's not stupid. And that's why they're portraying him as evil. Now, sometimes when you're super smart, you could come across as a little pompous, a little arrogant. So my advice to Cruz is a little more touch of Reagan charm and charisma would do good. Uh, but he's not stupid. He's not evil. But they got to put him in some box. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
888-900-3393. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders. How are you, sir? John just sent me a tweet. He said, a San Diego guy for the Broncos? Nice. Go Broncos. Um, well, I was born in Denver. And uh, my brother lives in London. And he will stay up in the middle of the night watching uh, a Broncos game. Uh, but more important than anything, my wife is from Tennessee. And Peyton Manning, if this is his last game next year, could move back to Tennessee and run for governor and win 98% of the vote. Like, it'd be no, like, just every, no, I don't even think anyone else would run. It's just, Peyton Manning says, I'm running for governor, and that would, that would be it. He'd be, like, he could do anything. He's the god in Tennessee. So, sure, I'm a San Diego guy, but I got a Tennessee wife, and uh, she bleeds orange. So, go Peyton Manning. I like people going out on top, too. It's a good story. Cam Newton's got plenty of time. Let's give Peyton his uh, what he deserves here. Um, oh yeah, assets, liabilities. So it's going to be a really interesting month. This this stretch of the campaign is it's a lot of fun. I don't know what I'm about to say here. I don't know how this will be done, uh, but I think whoever wins in this last month. And again, I say month because uh, Super Tuesday is on March 1st, and that's a bunch of states. So it'll be pretty clear, I think, who's going to be the nominee then. Um, whoever comes out in the end on March 2nd will be the person who best turns their liabilities into assets and turns the other candidates' assets, excuse me, uh, yeah, assets into liabilities. Let me say it again. Whoever can best turn their negatives into positives and turn the other people's positives into negatives, that's the person who's going to win. So we've been talking a lot the last month or so about the decision cycle. So the decision cycle was created by the greatest fighter pilot in American history, John Boyd. It has four parts. You observe, orient, decide, and act. So it's really easy to think about in aerial combat, right? Dogfighting. Whoever can do that decision cycle, the decision loop, faster will win the aerial fight, right? If you can observe, orient, decide, and act faster than the other guy, then you create reality and everyone else has to react to it. So if you can do that better than anyone else, you'll always be in the lead. And we've been taking that and applying it to Trump these last eight or nine months or so because he can do that faster than anyone. He can do this better than anyone. And this is why every debate is basically, uh, hey, uh, Governor Bush, Donald Trump said this. Right? Senator Cruz, Donald Trump did this. How do you respond? Everyone's always reacting to the reality that Trump creates. So that's John Boyd in the decision loop. That's been the last few months. But this next month here, Trump's going to have to do more than that. All the candidates are going to have to do more than just that. They're going to have to turn their negatives into positives and the other candidates' positives into negatives. Now, I haven't really sat down and figured out how this would work. I sort of jumped out of the, out of the prediction game, <laughs> as you could tell. Um, didn't go very well, my last predictions, and it's, predictions are silly. Um, I don't know how this will work, and work out, but I have a feeling that this is, this is whoever does win will, do, will have done this. So here's a couple examples of this happening. So I think one of the most famous examples would be um, Henry V. So the English had 6,000 soldiers. 
The French had 60,000 soldiers, most of them knights in armor on horseback. Right, so the British, they had no horses. They were exhausted after two months of trekking uh, across France. They were starving, and they were at their last wits. So there's the situation. 6,000 British, 60,000 French on horseback in armor. So looking at that very objectively, the French, their asset was they had a lot of men on horseback. That's their asset. Henry V turned it into a liability. He turned knights on horseback into a liability. How? Because he forced this giant army through a narrow area that was really muddy. The horses got stuck in the mud. The knights fell off with their 60-pound armor. They got stuck in the mud. So the horses and the armor went from being an asset, a French asset, to a French liability. If they were just guys walking around, they could maybe have avoided the mud or gotten out of the mud or not gotten stuck in the mud. But because they were in the army, because they were on horses, they got stuck in the mud. Their asset turned into a liability. Their positive turned into a negative. Now on Henry V's side, his liability, his negative was he had so few men. So he turned that into an asset with one of the greatest speeches that's ever been given. And the point of his speech, the St. Crispin's Day speech, is to turn his few exhausted and starving men into men who are fired up for glory, for glory and triumph. Right? And he says in his speech, he says, the men who are back in England asleep in their comfortable beds, they will curse themselves that they were not here with you. Right? He said, we shall be the ones remembered for eternity. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Right? He turned the few, the fact that there were so few of them, into the, the best part about them. Right? He turned the liability into their strength. And these 6,000 men who at first were like, oh, geez, we have no chance against these 60,000 people. There's only 6,000 of us. Now they're saying, there's 6,000 of us. We are the special few who are able, who are lucky enough to be a part of this. And everyone else will curse themselves that they're not here with us. But I'm the man. I'm one of the special few. Let's go into action and win. Let's go into battle and win. Isn't that awesome? So that's how Henry V was able to do it, able to turn the tables. I'll give an example in um, the business world. Ken Adelman uh, gives the example of 3M. So 3M was on a mission to create a new adhesive. They wanted to make something super strong. It was the strongest adhesive that's ever been created. And they tried and they tried and the scientists all tried and they couldn't get it. Nothing stronger than what they already had. And in fact, all they could come up with was this really weak adhesive which was demoralizing because they wanted the strongest ever and they came up with something pathetically weak i mean they, they this adhesive they came up with it could barely keep a piece of paper stuck to a surface that's how weak it was I mean, you put this adhesive on the back of a piece of paper and you stick it up against a wall and it'll stick but you could just like, like rip it right off and it, like well it's this is worthless 
3M turned that liability, that failed product, into post-it notes. They turned their liability into an asset. A couple weeks ago, I talked to the CEO of a, a San Diego sunglass company. He was trying to break into the sunglass industry. And it was going okay. They were selling you know, sunglasses here and there. And then one day, he got boxes of the wrong parts. He said they got boxes of neon green arms. Are they called arms of the glasses? I think they're called arms. So neon green sides, like the parts that goes over your ear, and then brown frames. And that's not what he ordered at all. And this was right in the beginning of his business, and it wasn't, you know, thinking they were pretty even with everything, and they're kind of losing money, and it wasn't going great. And then they get this huge order of neon with the brown, and like, what? Well, instead of taking a loss, he put them all together. He put the neon green arms with the brown frames and sold them as werewolf glasses sold more than he's ever sold before faster than he's ever sold any and then he started a new business model where he makes custom and special event glasses sunglasses for businesses and brands and special events so he's done it with a bunch of different businesses but like for shark week for instance so he'll make these special sunglasses that are designed just for shark week they'll look like a shark with like teeth on the sides or whatever but like small batches of custom made and designed glasses like werewolf glasses right that's that's his thing now i'll start it by accident he turned his liability into an asset it's the old mitch hedberg joke that pringles used to be a tennis ball business and then one day they got a truck full of potatoes and because they're such a laid-back company they're like ah all right whatever we'll make potato chips now That one didn't really happen, but the other stories did happen. So there's some businesses who have turned liabilities into assets. Who's going to do it now? Who's going to be the candidate who can turn their negatives into a positive and turn everyone else's positive into a negative? I'll give you one more example on a political example. So we had a battle example, a military example, a business example, and now a political example. The election of 1840, William Henry Harrison was the Whig. He was basically the Republican. Martin Van Buren was the Democrat looking for re-election. So the Democrat, Van Buren, said that William Henry was too old to be president. William Henry Harrison was too old to be president. I think he was 68, which was pretty old back then. They called him Granny. Right, so, so the Democrat called the Republican granny because he was 68 years old. And one of the Democratic newspapers said, give him a barrel of hard cider and a pension of $2,000 a year, and he will sit the remainder of his days in his log cabin. Right, as an insult, right? As like, like this, this guy, he's way too old. Give him something to drink, and he'll go sit on a rocking chair in his log cabin. Like, let him go over there while we take care of business because we we know what needs to be done but let the old granny go drink and and you know sit on his rocking chair that that was the attack so the Whigs, harrison took that and started calling himself the log cabin and hard cider candidate and the pitch was vote for harrison the war hero from the rough and tumble west 
right? Living in a log cabin, drinking the hard cider in the rough and tumble west, as opposed to the rich, out-of-touch Van Buren. Brilliant. Even though in reality, it was the opposite. Harrison's the one who came from the wealthy family, and Van Buren came from the poor family who would be living in a log cabin. But it didn't matter because the way they framed it. Not only that, but Harrison's campaign, they called him, again, the, the hard cider, uh, the log cabin hard cider candidate. So what they did is they handed out glass bottles in the shape of log cabins full of whiskey from Pittsburgh's EC Booze Distillery. Right, so imagine a bottle. You got the, you know, the, the arm of the, the neck of the bottle, and then the bottom of it, it looks like a log cabin full of whiskey. And they started handing them out. Now, why does this matter today? Because that's where we get the word booze from. Because, again, it was full of whiskey from the EC Booze Distillery. Now, booze was a word that was used hundreds of years ago in England, uh, but it was never popular in America until the election of 1840. That's why we use the word booze. Anyway, so you see, like, that's a silly example, but you can see that uh, Harrison turned a liability, a negative, a mold, into a positive. I guess Reagan would be another example, right? I'm not going to use my opponent's youth and inexperience against him. Like same, same concept. Who is going to be the person to do that in the next four weeks? I don't know. I don't know how. And I have no advice yet. And I have no predictions. I'm out of the prediction business. <laughs> so no one can predict these anymore. But I guarantee you on March 2nd, whoever does win after Super Tuesday, will look back and say, oh, look at that. He did it. We'll see. Keep an eye out for it. Maybe you can catch it when it happens. one 888 Mike Slater Show on Facebook and uh, Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Uh, do I got enough time to tell this story? I think I do real quick. Uh, Booker T. Washington, we've talked a lot about him today, telling the story of a man who lived next to a big fancy hotel. And there's a big pond in the back of that hotel. And the man had the idea that he was going to kill all the frogs in that pond uh, and sell them to the hotel for, uh, for frog legs at the restaurant. Going to make a killing off of it. So the owner asked, how many frogs can you catch me every night? And the guy said, a cartload every single night. So the owner said, ah, that's beautiful. Let's do that. That sounds great. We'll put frog legs right on the menu. So the next morning came and the guy slammed a box on the back porch. And he said to the owner, here's all the frogs I caught. The owner opened up the box and saw six frogs. He said, well, where are all the others? And the guy said, well, for months... I heard these bullfrogs in the pond making so much noise, I thought there were at least a million of them. But when I investigated, I found there were only six. Moral of the story, don't be distracted by six bullfrogs. 
In life, there will be times when you feel like there's so much against you. In politics, it'll seem like it's impossible to overcome. But most of the time, it's just six bullfrogs. Keep fighting. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.